First and Second Chronicles. Um, I don't know really why I said open up because uh, we're going to be flipping around a lot in First and Second Chronicles tonight, and so I guess it's open up to First Chronicles chapter one to to kind of be there. Um, if you don't know where First Chronicles is, it's in our English Bibles. It's right after the book of Second Kings. So you got First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings. First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Okay, in the in the Hebrew Bible, you all don't read the Hebrew Bible, so you really probably don't care. But in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Corinthians, or First and Second Chronicles, are the last two books in the in the Hebrew Old Testament. In our English Old Testament, we have it arranged by 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 topics, and and we have um, or by subject matter, and so we have uh, the law, and then we have history. And then we have the, pro- the, the writings and, and, and the prophets. We have them all in their own little categories. In, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, there are three categories, the law, the Torah, the writings, which is called the, the Ketchabim, the poetry, Psalms, and uh, Proverbs, and, and those kind of, those kind of uh, books. And then they have the, uh, the prophets at the end of their Bible, and they include the history section with the prophets. And so First and Second Chronicles are at the end, and we're going to see why here just in a few minutes. Um, but I wonder, first of all, if you all have ever had deja vu, or if you know what that means, if you've ever heard of that before, where you've been in a situation where there's something going on, and it feels like, it seems like you should know what's going on, but you don't really, right? It feels like you should remember something, or you should recognize something, or it, something should be kind of familiar to you, but you can't really put your finger on exactly what it is, right? Or I wonder if any of you have ever had amnesia before. I don't know if any of you all have. I never have. There is a, someone in our church, a member of our church, uh, who has had amnesia before. Um, I don't know if any of, any of you all have, but, but often that's something that comes up in movies and TV, right? Especially like in soap operas, dramas, where, uh, where someone will go into a coma or something and then come out and have amnesia, and it's a big, big storyline. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of movies that I'm familiar with, the, the, Born, the Born Identity series, I don't know if y'all are familiar with that, that series of movies, but that's kind of the baseline in that where this guy named Jason Bourne is the main character and he, uh, he's an assassin, uh, like, a, like a, uh, works for the army and he's an assassin and, and yet he has amnesia and doesn't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy and, and he can't really figure out if he's working for the good people or the bad people. Is he, is he an assassin or is he like a sniper for the good, good people and he's trying to figure all this stuff out. And, um, there's a there's a comedy movie called uh, called Fifty First Dates I think it's called, uh, and it's it's about this guy that that meets this girl and ends up getting married to her. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. Sorry, uh, ends up getting married to her. But but she has this disease where every morning she wakes up and it's a new day to her and she doesn't know anything. Um, and so he's having to deal with like like every day is a first date where he's meeting her again for the first time and it's a it's a it's a comedy movie but but those kind of things really do happen right there are cases where where someone will go into a coma or someone will have a have a, a, a an accident um, uh, a motorcycle wreck or vehicle wreck or a fall from some distance or, or some other kind of head trauma where they'll hit their head and, uh, and and these things happen where people end up in the hospital. And, and they don't know who they are. They don't remember who they are, and they don't remember who people are, right? Maybe, maybe someone's in the hospital, and their husband or their wife comes in to visit them, uh, and they come out of this coma, and they don't recognize their husband or their wife. And that's such a weird, would be such a weird situation to be in, I, I would imagine. And there's something similar to that going on with 
First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. Not exactly the same thing, but something, something very similar, okay? And so if you, if you know a little bit about the, the history of the Old Testament, a kingdom, and they started having kings. You remember Saul was the first king, right? And he ruled, he was, he was a really tall guy. It says he stood, he stood head and shoulders above other men. He was, he was a really tall guy. He became the first king. But then God took the kingdom away from him, and he gave it to David, right? And David was a good king. He wasn't a perfect king. He, 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 he turned away from the Lord in, in certain ways at, at certain points in his life. But David was a good king. And then when David died, his son Solomon became king, right? And Solomon was a good king too up until a point. But toward the end of Solomon's life, he turned away from the Lord. At the very end of Solomon's life, he kind of turned back to the Lord. But there was a, a, a long stretch of his life where he turned away from the Lord. Um, but Solomon was the next king after David. And then when Solomon died, Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. Okay, and Rehoboam became king after Solomon died, and Rehoboam wasn't king very long uh, until he started taking some bad advice, uh, and he started being really hard on the people of Israel. He had these these older uh, these older advisors who were advisors to his dad Solomon, and they said, you know, if you if you're if you're good to the people and you're a good king to them and you're gentle with them and kind to them and compassionate toward them, then they'll love you the way they loved your father. He had some younger advisors come in that he had picked, some new ones, and they said, you know what, That's, you can be a soft king if you want to, but what you really need to do is assert your, your power, assert your authority, right? People are, are, are used to following your dad. He was king for a long time. If you want to establish yourself as the next king, you need to really assert your dominance. You need to raise the taxes on the people. You need to, to, to be a kind of a drill sergeant with them, be hard toward them, and show them that you're the boss now, right? And unfortunately, he followed the advice of his young advisors. And what happened is the people weren't happy with that, right? The people began to revolt against him. And there was this other guy named Jeroboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, the king. There was another man named, named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam kind of rose to, to power among the ranks of the people. And he led this revolution, this revolt against Rehoboam. And, and what ended up happening was the kingdom of Israel, God's people, got divided up into two different kingdoms. And so you had the northern kingdom that revolted against Rehoboam and Jeroboam led them and Jeroboam became the first king of the northern kingdom. It's called the northern kingdom because it was the northern part of the kingdom. It wasn't the northern half, it was almost all of the kingdom. Um, and, and he reigned in the north. And then Rehoboam remained king in the south, in, in Judah, especially Jerusalem, the tribe of Judah. And so you, have, you had two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And from that point forward, throughout through the history of, of, of the Old Testament, there's kind of a parallel history going on. So if you read, uh, if you read the, king, the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, there's this parallel going on where this king will be king of, of Israel, talk about him for a little while, and then this king will be king of Judah, talk about him for a while. And this king will be king of, Jude, of Israel and Judah and Israel, Judah, it goes back and forth. And so you have both kingdoms being described in, 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 uh, in the book of Kings. You also had the prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all the minor prophets, and those prophets are living in certain kingdoms, and they're primarily uh, prophesying to specific kingdoms, either, king, either the north or the south, right? And so, so it goes along like that for, for just a little while, and then in about 722 BC, uh, Assyria is this bigger nation, and they come in and they conquer the northern kingdom, Israel. Okay? And so there is no more Israel anymore now. Assyria has conquered uh, Israel, but Judah is still a kingdom. And, and Judah lasts for a few more years. And in 586, 
uh, Babylon comes in and conquers Judah. Okay, and so now there is no kingdom anymore. The kingdom is gone. Uh, it's been conquered. And, and what they did, what Babylon did when they came in is they divided the leaders from the people. Right? And so they exiled a bunch of people from Judah to Babylon. They had to leave their country and go to, go to Babylon. And they took a lot of the leaders, a lot of the kings and the king's family with them to Babylon, left some other people in the land, but they divided them because they were thinking if we, if we divide the leaders from the people, then they won't be able to revolt because they'll have no one to lead them. The people won't have anyone to lead them in a revolt. And then the leaders won't have anybody to follow them in a revolt if we remove them and put them in different places, right? So that went on for, for some time. Uh, and, and then eventually uh, the Persians came in and, and, and there's other history that goes along with that. But that lasted for about 70 years, okay? And at the end of that time period, at the end of that 70 years, around 516, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and, some, and there were some others, but Ezra and Nehemiah uh, were able to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem, kind of reestablish Jerusalem as a city and rebuild the temple. They rebuilt the temple in 516 BC and they begin to, to let people come back from Babylon and go back there, okay? Now I say all that to talk about First and Second Chronicles because what's happening in these two books, if you read through them from, from, from First Chronicles 1 to Second Chronicles 36, there's not really any new information, okay? It's, it's stuff that's already in the Old Testament. So why do we even have these two books? What is the purpose of, of having them there? And, and, and here, here, here's what it is. The people that were conquered and, and moved out and, and, and deported, exiled into these other places, they begin to forget their history, okay? They begin to forget their history. They begin to be influenced by, the, by the, the culture of the Babylonians and the Persians. They began to be influenced by the religion of the Babylonians and the Persians. They began to worship idols and false gods that, that these other peoples worshiped. Uh, they began to be uh, influenced by the languages of the Babylonians. Um, and, and, and these other peoples that, that they were around now. Um, in fact, some of the priests had to develop a new way of writing Hebrew so that when the people came back to the land, they were trusting God was going to bring them back. And they developed this new way of writing Hebrew so that when the people came back to the land, they would, they would know how to pronounce the, the Hebrew words and, and be able to read it again because they had, they had, been, uh, they had been deported and didn't even speak their, their language anymore. So that's the situation. So, the, so now we come to the books of, of, of first and second Chronicles, and we don't know who wrote them. It doesn't say who wrote them. If you read through it, there, there's nothing there that's going to tell you who wrote them. However, um, most people think that Ezra wrote them. Okay, we don't know that for sure. Again, it doesn't say he wrote them, but we think Ezra wrote them, and we think Ezra wrote them to remind the people of who they were when they went back. When they were able to leave Babylon and go back and reestablish the, the, the kingdom there, reestablish the city of Jerusalem and, and live there, rebuild the temple, begin to worship God again uh, the way that they, that they had before and had been called to, this, this, these books are to remind the people of who they are. These people that had kind of forgotten, had this amnesia kind of thing. It's kind of like in that movie when, the, when, when they get married and, the, and the, the lady wakes up every day and doesn't know who she is. Um, her husband has written out these note cards. And so she'll wake up and there'll be a note card there and she'll read it and it'll tell her, hey, you're, this is your name and you have amnesia and you've forgotten. And she'll go to the mirror and it'll, it'll have a note card on there telling her something else. And, and so every day she's able to kind of reestablish who she is based on these note cards that her husband has written for her. First and Second Chronicles are kind of like those note cards. It's to remind the people of who they are, to reestablish them in, in, in the faith, okay? And if you, if you read the, the books of, of Chronicles, um, here, here's how they're laid out. So First Chronicles 
the first nine chapters, chapters one through nine, are all genealogies, right? So chapter one starts out and says, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javon, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyre. And it goes on like that for nine chapters, okay? And it lays out the whole genealogy from, uh, from Adam all the way through uh, to the end of the, of the period that he's talking about. Okay, so the first nine chapters are that, genealogies. And then chapters 10 through 29 through the end of uh, First Chronicles are all about David, all about King David. There's, there's a little bit there about Saul, and then it goes to David, and, and the whole rest of that is all about David. Okay? In Second Chronicles, uh, the first nine chapters, chapters 1 through 9, are all about Solomon. So the end of First Chronicles, David dies. The beginning of Second Chronicles, Solomon becomes king. And so the first nine chapters of Second Chronicles are all about Solomon. And then the, the rest of Second Chronicles from chapter 10 to chapter 36 are all about the, uh, the kings from Rehoboam, Solomon's son Rehoboam, all the way through the end of the kingdom until they're taken off into exile. Okay, and they don't. He doesn't talk here about Israel. You know, in, I said in First Kings, you had it kind of interspersed the the northern kings and the southern kings, and it told about both of them. In Chronicles, it only talks about the southern kingdom, Judah, and that's because those are the ones that were taken to Babylon, and those are the ones who were coming back from Babylon to to back into Jerusalem, and so so that so he's focusing on the history of Judah because that's the people that he's writing to. Okay. And so, uh, again, his purpose here is to remind the people that are coming back from captivity who, who they are. Um, and, and so here, here's what he tells them, three things. Who the true God is, who they were, and what that means. Who the true God is, who they were, and what that means. So first point tonight, who is God? Who is the true God? Who is the true God? And, and two things about the true God that, that the author of Chronicles wants us to know. The first thing is he wants us to know that God is sovereign. And the second thing he wants us to know is that God is good. God is sovereign and God is good. God is in control. God is authoritative. God is powerful. Um, God's in charge. And then also God is good. Okay? And we see that God is sovereign. We see that God is in charge um, in, in two different ways. We see that he's in charge of uh, over nations and over big political kind of entities. And so look at a few passages here. Uh, look at 1 Chronicles chapter 5. You can turn or listen. 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 25 and 26 say this. But they acted treacherously against the God of their fathers and played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, even the spirit of Tilgath-Pilnesar, king of Assyria, and he carried them away into exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he brought them to Hala, Habor, Hera, and to the river Gozan to this day. Okay? Why is it that the Assyrians came up against them? Because the God of Israel stirred up their spirits. And so it looks like these nations are coming to, to, to fight against them, to war against them, to, to, to attack them. But the writer of Chronicles is wanting us to know that, yeah, that's what happened. But what really happened is God is behind that. And this was a punishment. This was discipline because they had turned away from, from God. They had turned away from the Lord. Okay? Uh, another example was right after that in chapter 6, verse 15, says, 
And Jehozadak went along with the Lord, uh, went along when the Lord carried Judah and Jerusalem away into exile by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so how is it that uh, that Judah and Jerusalem went into exile by Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't know, was the king of Babylon. So how is it that Judah and Jerusalem went into exile to Babylon? It's not, it's not only that Babylon was stronger than them and Babylon was more powerful than them and Babylon had maybe better, uh, better army or better equipment than them. It was, the writer of First Chronicles tells us, the Lord carried Judah and Jerusalem away into exile by Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't just that Babylon was this great nation. They were this big kingdom and they, and they were really powerful at that time. But the only reason they were so powerful is because God had made them that powerful. And the only reason they were able to conquer Judah is because God wanted them to conquer Judah in, in, in discipline against them for turning away from him. There's lots of passages like that. I'm not going to read any more just for time, but there's lots of, lots of passages like that. In, in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, uh, again, God stirred up the, um, the Philistines and the Arabs and the Ethiopians, it says, against them. And there's lots and lots of other passages throughout these two books that, that talk about that. But God is, is sovereign over, over nations, and he controls what happens uh, between nations. And, and also note that he's, doing, he's not doing that just arbitrarily, right? He's not doing that just, just because, he's not doing that for no reason. He's doing it to discipline his people, right? His purpose is for the good of his people. But he exercises sovereignty over the nations for the good of his people, for the purpose of his people. But he's also sovereign over, over individuals, not just nations, but also individuals. So, so think through this for a minute. All those genealogies in, in, in chapters one through nine, Okay, we didn't read them, but all those genealogies in chapter 20, uh, 1 through 9, you know, you know about some of them, right? You know that, that of all the people listed there, God chose Abraham to be the father of, of his people, right? Well, why did he choose Abraham and not someone else? Abraham's dad's name, I think, was Terah, right? Why did he not choose Terah? Why did he choose Abraham? All, all, Peleg is another one that's in there in, around the same time as Abraham. Why did he choose Abraham? What about Isaac and Ishmael? Those were both sons of Abraham and Sarah, right? Why did he choose Isaac and not Ishmael? What about Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau? Why did he choose Jacob and, and not Esau? Why did he choose Judah and not one of the other 11 tribes for the, for the kings to come from and eventually Jesus to come from? Why did he choose David to be the king? Remember, if you remember that story about David, remember uh, David was the youngest and the smallest and kind of the runt of the whole family, right? He wasn't even there. When they came to anoint the, uh, the king, God, God sent the prophet there to, to their house and all of his dad had them all dress up and get, get, you know, their, look their best and as fancy and as regal as they could look and they all paraded before the prophet and none of them was the one that God picked. And finally the prophet said, is there any other, others? Because I know God said it's one of your sons, but it's not any of these. They said, well, we got David, but he's, he's the little run. He's, he's not even here. He's out of taking care of the sheep. And, and that's the one that God picked. Why did he pick those people and not other people to use? God's, God's sovereign over individuals. God's sovereign over his choices, over his decisions, and how he executes his, his will, his plan. Listen to 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14 say, so Saul died for his trespass. This is the first king, Saul. So Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, because the word of the Lord, which he did not keep, and also because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it, and did not inquire of the Lord, 
Therefore, he killed him and turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. Did God have to turn the, the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse? No. Did, they, did God have to take the kingdom away from Saul? No. He, he was right to do so. He was just to do so. He wasn't unfair in doing that, but he didn't have to do that. He chose to do that for his own reasons and for his own purposes and, and, and for the good of his people, right? But God's, God's in control of those kind of, those kind of decisions and those kind of situations that, that come about. In chapter 11, it talks about David again. It says that, that because God was with him, David became more and more powerful. Well, God didn't have to do that. God didn't have to let him become more and more powerful, but God was with him and caused him to become more and more powerful because that was his, his will, that, that, that was part of his purpose. Toward the end of 1 Corinthians, in, in chapter 29, I keep saying 1 Corinthians, but I mean Chronicles. I think y'all know that. 1 Chronicles. At the end of 1 Chronicles, in chapter 29, uh, verses 18 and 19, listen to this. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and direct their heart to you. And give to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, and to do them all, and to build the temple for which I have made provision. This is David praying, right? He's praying about his son Solomon. And he's saying, God, direct the heart of our people and direct the heart of my son Solomon and keep him near to you. And David's praying that because he knows and he believes that God is able to do that. God is sovereign to direct the hearts of individual people. Other parts of the Bible say other things and say that the, the heart of the king is like a, like a stream of water. God directs it wherever he wills, right? And there's something similar going on here where the writer of Chronicles wants us to know that God is, is sovereign. He does what he wants. We can trust him that he's sovereign now, today as well. And that just as he was working things then for his purposes and for his pleasure and for his glory and for our good, we can trust that that's happening now as well in, in, in nations and individuals, in, in big things and in small things, just like in, in Chronicles. God does what he wants. We can rely on him. We can hope in him. We can trust him in our, in our circumstances. But the author of Chronicles also wants us to know that God is good. God is sovereign. God's also good. And he tells us specifically that God's good in, in at least three ways, maybe more, but at least three ways. And, and so the first thing he tells us about God being good is that he's faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. He does what he says he's going to do. And uh, there's several places, again, where we can, we can see this. I'm just going to read uh, a couple for the sake of time. But in, in, uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, uh, we read this in, in verse 34. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness or his faithfulness is everlasting. God's faithfulness is everlasting. If God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. He's going to keep his word. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. In, in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, we see something very similar. Chapter 6, verse 14. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness or faithfulness 
to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. The Lord is faithful, and his faithfulness is everlasting. And there's other passages like that in, 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 uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter, chapter 7. There's a couple places where it says, again, God's faithfulness is, is everlasting. So God's good, and part of him being good means that he's faithful. Another part of him being good means that he's just. He's just. He does what's, he does what's right. And so listen to 2 Chronicles chapter 19. He's talking here to some judges that they've set up in the kingdom to, 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 to judge over different disputes. And, and he says, he appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. So each city had a judge. He said to the judges, consider what you're doing. For you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. So you're a, you're a representative of God when you're, when you're judging. So take, take account of that. Take notice of that. And verse 7 says, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. God will have no part in unrighteousness. God will have no part in, in injustice. God is just. He does what's right. He judges rightly. He judges truly. And then finally we see that God is kind. Another thing it means for God to be good is that he is, he is kind. In, uh, in Second, Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13 says, In unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for his kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. There's several places throughout these two books where it says that God's kindness is everlasting. His faithfulness is everlasting. His kindness is everlasting. He does not show partiality, does not take a bribe. He does not do what's unjust. God is, God is good. So Ezra's reminding the people as they're coming back from captivity who their God is. They've been worshiping these false gods. They've been uh, following these, these, these other gods that weren't good, and he's saying, your God is good. Remember who you are. Remember, remember who you are, but remember whose you are. God is good. The second thing he wants them to know, though, is who is, who is God, but then he also wants them to know who they are. Who were they? And as we're thinking about this, we can also be asking the question, who are we? Who were they, and who are, who are we? Two things about who they were and who we are Remember, I said God is sovereign and God is good. They were not sovereign and they were not good. They were not sovereign and they were not good. Just a couple of, it, of examples to show this. Second Chronicles chapter 21. Verse 4 says this. Now when Jehoram had taken over the kingdom of his father and made himself secure... He killed all his brothers with a sword and some of the rulers of Israel also. Okay? So Jehoram is a king. He's taken over the kingdom of his father. His father died. He became the king. And the first thing he did as a king was he killed all of his brothers. Right? And, and I think we know why. That's a power play, right? Him trying to secure his throne and, and make sure that he doesn't have any rivals to try to take over, right? But what is he trying to do? 
He's trying to control the whole situation, control the whole circumstances. He's trying to be sovereign over that situation. He's trying to make things work out the way that he wants them to work out. And we know that he's not, and yet he tried to be. Another example is in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, in, uh, in verses 35, starting in 35, he says, And this Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel. He acted wickedly in so doing. And so again, there's, there's political threats happening, there's, there's war threats happening, military threats happening. And so instead of trusting in the Lord to, to deliver them, instead of trusting in the strength of the Lord to, uh, to protect them and provide for them, they begin making alliances with these other nations here with Israel, with the northern kingdom, right? And again, they're trying to establish their own safety, trying to establish their own, uh, their own security, trying to be sovereign over their situation. And, and yet they're not. The Lord is sovereign. So who are they? They're, they're not sovereign. They're also not good. They're also not good. Uh, the Lord, we said he was good because he was faithful. The people, as you probably know, were unfaithful. They were unfaithful to the Lord. And so in 2 Chronicles chapter 25, we see this. In lots of places we see this. But in 25, verse 14, it says, Now after uh, Amaziah came from slaughtering the Edomites, he brought the gods of the sons of Seir, set them up as his gods, bowed down before them, and burned incense to them. So this is the king. I think what's happening here, this is the king who has just defeated the Edomites, has just defeated another group of, of people, right? And, and he's trusting in the Lord by the power of the Lord. The Lord's helping him, as we saw with David and with others. He's a king. He's gone. He's conquered this other people, the Edomites. But then he gets their gods and brings them back with him and begins to worship them and burn incense to them, burn, burn sacrifices to them. These people are, are unfaithful to the Lord. They're not, they're not following him. In, in chapter 29 of Second Chronicles, verse 6, For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. Explicitly there he says the people are un, unfaithful. Listen to this. Look, look at how far, how far away from the Lord they can go. This is in chapter 33. Starting in verse 2. This is talking about Manasseh. I'll start in verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. What that means is that he followed the gods of these other nations that God had driven out of the promised land when they came across the Jordan. He went back to those gods. He did those, that, that's the abominations that it's talking about there. And listen to verse 3. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. So Hezekiah was a good king. They had these high places, these, uh, these places to worship these false gods. And his, his father, Hezekiah, was a good king and had broken all those down and led the people back to worship the true God. But now Manasseh became king and he rebuilt those. And so we're going to go back to worshiping these, these, these altars. He also erected, in verse 3, he also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim. These, these are other, other idols. And worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Verse 4 says, he built altars in the house of the Lord. 
of which the Lord had said, my name shall be in Jerusalem forever. He went into the temple of the true God and put up altars to these false gods in the temple. Verse five, for he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And then listen to verse six. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and he practiced witchcraft and used divination and practiced sorcery and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Some of you may have a different translation there that's a little bit more clear, but when he says he made his sons pass through the fire, what that means is that he offered sacrifice, he offered child sacrifices. He sacrificed his sons to these, to these false gods. And Ezra, if he's the one that wrote Chronicles, he's reminding these people of their history. He's reminding them of why they ended up in exile to begin with. He's reminding them of why, why God sent them off to Babylon and drove them out of the land because of their sins, because of the sins of their fathers, the sins of, of the kings that had led them away from the Lord. The people are unfaithful to God. They're also unjust. Remember, uh, God is just. The people are unjust. Back in Second Chronicles, back in chapter 19, we, we read about this. Verse 2, Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? God's just, right? God doesn't take a bribe. God does what's right. This king here, uh, Jehoshaphat, is helping the wicked. He's not helping the righteous. He's not fighting the wicked. He's helping the wicked. He's unjust. In 2 Chronicles 6, Solomon's praying to God, and Solomon says, there is no one who does not sin. There's no one who does not sin. Everybody, every one of them have turned away from the Lord in, in sin. And then just kind of a, kind of a summary, summary statement here. Listen to what chapter 12 of 2 Chronicles says. This is 2 Chronicles 12, 14. This is talking about the root of Rehoboam's sacrifice or his rebellion and, and sin against God. Why did he turn away from the Lord? I think this is kind of a, kind of a summary for all of them and, and, and for us. Verse, chapter 12, verse 14 says, He did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. He did not set his heart to seek the Lord. And so he ended up doing evil. God is sovereign and God is good. The people are not sovereign and the people are not good. They tried to be. They tried to be sovereign, tried to take over for themselves, rebelled against God. But they're not sovereign, they're not good. So what does this mean? God's sovereign and good. The people are not sovereign and not good. What does that mean? Well, a couple of things. One thing it means is that God's still going to be faithful to his promises. God's still going to be faithful to his promises. Even if we're unfaithful, God is still going to be faithful to his promises. Okay? Turn with me. I, I want you all to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. We're going to stay there just for a few minutes, then we're going to go one other place and we'll get out early. Just kidding, probably not, but that's what Josh said this morning. <laughs> First Chronicles chapter 17, verse, uh, verse 11. 
This is, this is the, the prophet Nathan speaking on behalf of God to David. Okay, You may be familiar with this. He says to David, when your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. That's Solomon, right? We know that. That's Solomon. He will build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. Solomon built the temple. But it says, I will establish his throne forever. I will establish his throne forever. That means Solomon, David, is going to have a descendant on the throne forever, right? There's always going to be a king, a descendant from David, from Solomon, on the, king, on the throne of Judah forever, right? But what's the obvious thing that, that, that should be in their mind when they're reading this? We've been in exile in Babylon for 70 years, and there wasn't a king on the throne for 70 years, right? Is God not doing what he said? God promised there's going to be, on the king, there's going to be a king on the throne forever. And for the last 70 years, there hasn't been a king on the throne. There hasn't even been a throne. We've been captured and often in Babylon. There hasn't even been a king of, of Judah. So is God not keeping his promise? Well, listen on, verse 13. I will be his father, he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness or my faithfulness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan the prophet spoke to David. So God had made, made this promise to David, there's going to be a king forever, right? But there's not a king because they're on, in, in Babylon for 70 years. There's no king on the throne at all for 70 years. What's, what's happening here? We're not going to go to the New Testament, but I think, you, I think you know already. If we do go to the New Testament and we read those genealogies in the New Testament, who is the great, 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 great grandfather of, of Jesus? It's David, right? God did keep this promise. He did fulfill this promise that he made to David. He did keep his faithfulness to his people. He did keep the faithfulness to his covenant by establishing a throne forever with his son Jesus, the son of David, reigning forever eternally. As we finish up, I want to turn to, to uh, Ezra chapter 9. Okay? We're not preaching Ezra tonight. That's going to come up here in a couple of weeks. But I want to turn there tonight. This is where we're going to end. Ezra chapter 9. What does it mean? God is sovereign and good. We're not sovereign. We're not good. What, is, what, is, what does that mean? Where do we go from there? God's going to be faithful. And he's going to keep his promises. He made this promise to David, and he's going to have a king on this throne forever. Look at Ezra chapter 9. Look at verse, verse 5. Remember, Ezra's writing the same time period. So this is the same time when they're starting to come back from Babylon, back to Jerusalem at the end of the captivity, the same time he wrote First and Second. Uh, Chronicles. He wrote those so they would know their history, know their background, know their, their heritage, where they came from. And now we have his book here, verse 5. But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and I stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder. 
and to open shame as it is this day. But now, verse 8 says, but now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. God's faithful to his promises. He's going to keep his covenant. He's going to keep his promises to his people, right? And even though God is sovereign and God is good and we're not, part of God's goodness is his faithfulness to us, his kindness to us, his justice, and that he's made a way to, to, to remain just and also to be merciful and forgiving toward us. If you notice in, in, in that little passage we read there in, in chapter 9, there's, there's three things that, that happen. In verse 5, it says they come before God in, in humility, with great humiliation. In verses 6 and 7, they confess their sins to God. It says that their guilt is great. And in verse 8, it says that they received God's grace. They came to him in humiliation. They confessed their sins to him. And the Lord saved them. He revived them, it says. He enlivened them. He gave them a place in his holy place. He enlightened their eyes. And he saved them. The Lord's going to be faithful to his promises. But another thing that we know, and we just see a very little hint of it here in this passage, but we know this. God is going to judge their rebellion and our rebellion. Look back again at, at verse 8. Verse 8, he says, But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant, to give us a peg in his holy place, and our, that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. God responded to their confession, responded to their humility with grace, right? But you may have missed that little bitty phrase at the, very, at the very beginning of verse 8, he says, but now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord. For a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord. There's salvation in the Lord, but it's not forever. The opportunity's not there forever. There's, there's a day coming when God's going to judge sin, when God's going to judge rebellion against him. And that day's coming soon. But for a brief moment, there's salvation. For a brief moment, there's grace. For a brief moment, God is merciful and kind and gracious toward his people. If we come to him in humility and in confession and, and receive his grace. So I'll leave you tonight. I want to leave you tonight with just a, just a, a couple of questions, a few questions. And the first one is, when we think about God's goodness and God's sovereignty, are you trying to control and work things out in your life or are you serving him faithfully and trusting that he's in control and that he's good? Is there anything or anyone that you're trusting more than you're trusting in God? Are there any ways where you're trying to manipulate situations or manipulate people even to get the results you want that you think are best for you instead of trusting in what God's doing and what God's in control of, what's best, what he thinks is best for you. 
Another question, is there anything in your life that you love more than you love God? Is there anything that you're more devoted to than you're devoted to God? Is there anything that would hurt you if you lost it more than it would hurt you if you were separated from God? And then the final question, will you approach God in all humility and confess those things and receive God's grace in the moment when it can be found? Father God, we thank you so much that you are sovereign and in control and and God, we thank you that you're good. God, if you were just if you were just powerful and 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 sovereign and authority and all those kind of words and, and, and yet you weren't good, God, we would be terrified of you. And yet, God, if you were only good and merciful and kind and loving, but you weren't sovereign, yeah, we wouldn't really have any hope. But God, we thank you that you're both. You're sovereign and you're good. And God, we confess that we're neither of those things. We try to be, we try to be sovereign and we try to be good. God, we try to, try to work things out ourselves and, and try to make things work out the way we want them to, the way that we think is best. And God, we try to in, in, impress each other, impress ourselves, impress you with, with our lives. And, and yet, God, we know that they don't measure up to the standard of goodness. And, and God, we pray that you would forgive us for those things. And God, we pray that you would enlighten our eyes, God, that we might trust in you even more, hold on to you even more tightly. God, may there be nothing that we love more than you. May there be nothing that we trust in more than you. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, that you've kept your promises and that we find those in him. And it's in his name we pray, amen.